Yeah, thanks, uh, Mrs. Campion. So, yeah, I'm going to talk for the next sort of half an hour or so about some of my experiences uh, as actually an, as an economist, now an economics teacher, uh, cycling around the world. The title, Observations on the World Economy from the Back of uh, a Tandem. Just hands up if you are an economics student. Okay, so about half a Don't worry, it's not going to be uh, that economics-y, uh, and so hopefully we'll keep it fairly light-hearted. And I think there'll be time for questions at, at, at the end. So I teach at St. Paul's School down in London at the moment, um, and I've been a teacher for the last 10 years or so. But before I became a teacher, I was an economist in the city of London. Like most city economists, I failed to predict the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009. So I thought I'd become a teacher and maybe help the next generation I, you guys avoid the uh, next financial crisis, which uh, might be upon us uh, as we speak. But over two separate trips, um, I've effectively sort of cycled the distance uh, around the world, but focused mainly on Africa uh, and Asia. Um, the first trip I did uh, in 2011-2012 was to cycle back to London for the 2012 Olympics. I started in South Africa uh, and spent a year uh, cycling uh, back to, to London. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, why did, uh, why did I, I do it? Partly I was, I was keen to have an, have an adventure. Um, but like most people, you're inspired by someone. I was inspired by my uh, parents. Uh, their honeymoon was to drive a VW camper van. You can see that in the background in the 70s from London to uh, Cape Town. Um, I didn't have a wife, so I thought, well, I'll... Uh, uh, cycle uh, instead, and so I bought myself a tandem bicycle, and uh, and I uh, flew out to South Africa and cycled back. And thought well, maybe I'll I'll be able to pick up a wife on the way back. Uh, I didn't. Um, I but I met some fascinating people, um, and uh, the, the, over the next half an hour, I'm going to tell you about some of the people that I met and the conversations that I had with them uh, to understand more about the uh, the economy. Um, and uh, their observations on it. Because as a, as a, those of you who study economics, you'll understand the difference between micro and macro uh, economics. I was a macro economist in the city. And so a lot of our job was trying to forecast what was going on in the UK and in the world economy. It was meeting some really interesting people, but mainly sort of policymakers, uh, bankers, and then sort of plugging all those sort of thoughts into a spreadsheet and coming out with sort of forecasts. I didn't really uh, get to understand what was going on on, uh, on the ground. Um, Alfred Marshall, one of the Cambridge economists from the, the 19th century, said that economics is the study of the, uh, of the effectively all the, the man in the going about the ordinary, uh, in the, I'll actually quote you, the study of man in the ordinary business of life. Some people talk about it as the study of humanity. So um, by b being able to meet people, I un understood a lot more about what was going on in the world. So this is Mungwe. Uh, Mungwe uh, was uh, from Tanzania or the Tanzanian-Kenyan border. Can anyone recognize the tribe that Mungwe was from? Anyone been to East Africa? Yeah? Ma what's that? Yeah, Maasai. So Mungwe was a Maasai elder. You can see there that he, had, uh, he wasn't really very well fitted out for cycling. Uh, I picked him up on the side of the road and he said he was looking for a lift back to his village. And so we were cycling on it. It was about 10 kilometers. Uh, and after a, after a couple of K, his purple sort of tunic got stuck in the, uh, in the, the gear mechanism. We came to a sort of screeching halt, but fortunately we were okay. But you can see there he had a sword, he had a staff, but he also had a mobile phone. And this was back in 2011. And we'll talk about this a bit more uh, later, but the impact of the mobile phone in Africa back in 2011 was, was fascinating. In Kenya, there's a company called M-Pesa which means in Swahili, mobile money. And even in 2011, around a third of Kenya's GDP, which is the, sort of the measure of the economy for those uh, non-economists, about a third of Kenya's GDP was flowing through this money, uh, mobile money uh, system. And Impesa is an interesting story. It was uh, part funded by DFID, the Department for International Development in the UK, and part owned by Safaricom, which is the subsidiary of uh, Vodafone, the the UK multinational. So a really interesting story of economic development and actually one where back in 2011, Africa was arguably more advanced than, uh, than the West. So that was Mungwe. Uh, further north on this first trip, this is uh, Mohammed. Mohammed was a uh, 
lived in Sudan. This is the Nubian Desert on the border of the uh, Sahara Desert in northern uh, Sudan. Uh, he didn't speak a lot of English, and uh, he wasn't used to, to pedaling, wasn't really uh, in the right uh, cycling gear either. But he sort of joked to me that when we got to his village, that the mobile phone companies were competing with Allah for airtime. And sure enough, uh, we got to his village, and there were three mobile phone masks and only uh, one mosque. Everywhere we went, the sort of the impact of mobile technology um, on Africa, and, uh, and I saw that in, in Asia as well, was having a sort of really interesting impact on the uh, economy. So that was the first trip, um, and you know, learned lots about Africa. One of the things was how big it is. Okay, it was, uh, took a long time, uh, the best part of a year, to cycle through it. But the, this map, uh, some of you I'm sure have seen it, just shows the sort of the, the vast scale of Africa. So geographically, you can fit the whole of Western and Eastern Europe, uh, China and India, the two most populous countries in the world, as well as the, the United States and Japan into that continent. Africa is also the cradle of humanity. Um, if you take humanity, depending on when, when you sort of start it, but if you took Af uh, humanity as a, as a football match, you've actually only been out of Africa uh, in the last three minutes. And I was actually uh, giving this talk in Wellington, Shanghai, uh, actually three years ago uh, at the end of the, the second trip, which I'm going to come on to, uh, and one of the students uh, said that he hoped that we weren't in extra time. And I'm certainly, you know, given the concerns over the environment, maybe uh, we are. But if Africa is the sort of the cradle of humanity, um, you know, I got back from Africa in 2012. I was sort of keen to do a, a, another trip. And I thought as an economist, if I want to understand about the world economy today, where do I need to get to? And unquestionably, the center of the world economy today is in East Asia, uh, and in particular, uh, China. So I think this map also tells an interesting story. Half of the world's population inside that circle. Two-thirds of that circle is water. And of, uh, the two most pop, uh, populous countries in the world are represented uh, by that India and China. Uh, it's only three years ago, about a third of the world's children were in India. But looking forward, by halfway through this century, uh, the uh, UN estimate that between 40 and 50% of the world's children will actually be in Africa. So I thought, right, uh, I've sort of done Africa. Uh, it would be fantastic to cycle to China and try and understand more about what's going on on the ground uh, in China and on, and on the way there. I thought, brilliant, why not cycle along one of the ancient Silk Roads, um, which, you know, the Silk Roads, if you normally would associate with uh, sort of first and, first and second century trade routes between Shan and central uh, China. Does this have a... Uh, Okay, don't worry, to say Shan, all the way back to sort of Constantinople, now East Istanbul. Um, why don't I try and cycle one of those routes uh, in reverse? I said back in uh, 2012 when I bought the tandem, I didn't have a wife, I thought it would be a good way of maybe meeting, uh, meeting one. That didn't happen, but I had met a, uh, a, a fellow teacher, um, and on the second date I sort of said to her, would you fancy cycling to China? And she said yes. So, uh, so we started planning this trip. Her parents weren't that uh, keen on, on the route to China. If you look at the, uh, the route uh, of one of the ancient Silk Roads, it's going through sort of Iran, Iraq, Central Asia. Uh, probably not the, the, the safest uh, route to take. But actually the Silk Road, we talk about these as ancient trade routes and really interesting in terms of what they represent. But the term Silk Road was only coined by a German geographer in the late 19th century to describe east-west uh, trade routes. So actually, if you think of what the world economy is going to look like over the next hundred years, Europe is going to become smaller and smaller and less relevant as, as part of the uh, uh, world, world economy. Arguably, the growth engine uh, over the next hundred years could be Africa. So I thought it would be more interesting as a Silk Road would be to try and uh, travel the route that links Africa uh, and Asia, and potentially maybe try and follow the route of natural resources that go from Africa, an African mine, to uh, Chinese factory. Now, natural resources, they're you know, really interesting to economists. You know, copper and things like that, they're, they're super important in, in global su supply chains, but they don't probably 
stimulate that much curiosity amongst uh, students. So we were thinking, well, could we tell the story of uh, a, a product in the world economy that's super, super important? And it became pretty clear that actually the most important uh, product for most people today is their phone. Okay. I mean, I'm a teacher trying to use, uh, trying to police uh, how you guys use your phones is, is, is quite a challenge. But there's no doubt they're here to stay and they're a really important part of our, of our lives going forward. Um, this was a headline from The Economist a couple of years ago. Um, I think more than 80% of actually of adults now have a, what they call a supercomputer uh, in their pocket. We talk about it being a mobile phone, but really it's a computer. The processing power of the actual the iPhone 5, I'm not sure anyone still uses an iPhone 5, was more powerful than the computer that NASA used to put a man on the moon uh, 50 years ago. And that computer was probably half the size of this room. It's the fastest selling gadget in economic history. Um, and it's doing some amazing things uh, for us as consumers and as uh, businesses. But there are plenty of issues around the uh, mobile phone. Some of you will follow the Guardian journalist George uh, Monbiot. Uh, he was interested in trying to find a smartphone that is not uh, covered in blood. I talked about uh, the supply chain that we were interested in following. There are about 45 natural resources that go into the production of a smartphone. Um, gold, actually, if, we t if, we took all, if I took all of your smartphones off of you and we took out the gold in it, there'd be more gold in that than in uh, a ton of ore coming out of the ground from one of the gold mines in, uh, around the world. Um, tantalum, a really important uh, part of the uh, production process in the screens. 80% of tantalum is found in the DRC. The Democratic Republic of Congo, not that democratic, um, but it's responsible that the conflicts, uh, conflicts associated in that country, uh, or the deaths associated with the conflicts in that country is responsible for more deaths than any war since the uh, Second World War. So we talk about conflict minerals. I was talking to some of the uh, uh, lower sixth economists over supper around uh, about Rwanda and the DRC. And conflict minerals are a big issue uh, around that. So we, uh, for the trip to China, we partner with a, an interesting company called Fairphone, uh, which are effectively an ethical uh, or a fair trade uh, smartphone, um, and use the Fairphone to sort of record the journey and try and tell the story of the minerals that go into that Fairphone um, and try and tell the story of the world, world economy. So from African mind, so this is uh, us I'm um, going to tell you a little bit more about the route in a minute. Uh, this is Claire, my wife, going down an artisanal gold mine in Zimbabwe. The gentleman in front of her was a uh, farmer that had been kicked off his land by Robert Mugabe uh, and had effectively opened up an old mine. You can see there wouldn't be a great place for a, a, a school trip given the health and safety issues. We basically slid down these old railway lines about 30 metres underground and you can see there there's not a lot of investment going on uh, in this mine for lots of different reasons. They were digging the gold ore out uh, effectively with dynamite and, and picks and shovels uh, and then uh, feeding it up to the surface. And I was talking to the, the miner, the former farmer, <coughs> uh, when we got out of the uh, mine and we'd been down there for like 30 minutes. It was pretty claustrophobic, really hot. These guys were down there for eight hours at a time, all to dig out this precious, uh, metal uh, that we know so well. So out of a ton of ore coming out of that uh, mine, there was about three and a half, four grams of gold, um, and that would be about the amount of gold in 50 uh, smartphones. Just co coincidentally, at the time, well, not quite at the time, if we take all the gold that's ever been mined in the world, anyone know how much gold that would be? the size of the, the, the volume of that gold that's ever been mined since previous to Egyptian times. Yeah. Yeah, Olympic swimming pool. So that cuboid of about 20 metres by 20 metres by 20 metres. Um, so again, not that much uh, similar to the sort of the volume of this room. At the peak of gold prices, uh, that gold was worth more than all privately owned farmland across the world 
and this is a metal that uh, we use it for jewelry, we use it in smartphones, but it doesn't yield any uh, actual return relative to other uh, investments. So that was um, coming back to the story. We wanted to tell the story of uh, minerals going from African mine to Chinese uh, or Asian factory. And there are lots of issues around uh, <coughs> uh, what's going on in terms of health and safety and uh, working conditions uh, in uh, factories in China. And Apple, who work with a company called Foxconn in China, have come under a lot of fire for uh, that. Having said that, for, as an economist, it's creating a fantastic, uh, well, fantastic employment numbers and about half a billion people, uh, economists reckon, have been lifted out of poverty on the World Bank measure because of the, the fast growth of the manufacturing sector in, uh, in Asia, but in particular in China. So Fairphone uh, is the company that we were, we were partnering with for the journey. And what's interesting about Fairphone, as I say, it's a sort of fair trade phone. They've actually just got their third model out, which is uh, uh, acknowledged by the fair trade uh, trademark. So they try and ensure that the minerals that go into the, the phone are ethically sourced, that the working conditions in the factories uh, are uh, acceptable. But I think more interestingly from uh, sort of consumers' perspective, the they actively encourage uh, owners of the phone to repair the phones themselves. How many of you, have, has anyone here actually tried to take their phone apart and repair it themselves? Mr. Rowan at the back. So two out of maybe uh, 50 or 60. L as soon as you try and do that with, a, let's say, an Apple or a Samsung phone, you lose the warranty. They're not interested in us doing that because they want us to buy the latest uh, model. This is a modular phone. They're actively encouraging you to... Uh, buy new components and, and do it yourself. So from an environmental perspective, it's a much more sustainable way of um, having that sort of relationship with your phone. So the journey that we did for the, the, the second trip was originally, to, we cycled to um, Amsterdam. That's where Fairphone are based. We flew to Uganda, uh, followed the route <coughs> uh, through uh, Uganda, Rwanda, uh, popped into the DRC, down into Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, um, and most of the minerals from sort of Central Africa could go down to either Durban or go, uh, go across to the East Coast and then flew to Singapore and then follow the route from Singapore up through Southeast Asia uh, and finish in Shanghai. And as I said, the, 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 the sort of final visit to a school, and we visited lots of schools, was Wellington, uh, Shanghai. The other reason for starting in uh, Uganda but was my... My wife, who, who joined me for the, for the second stage, in order to keep that backseat of the tandem free so that we could meet people and understand more about the countries we were going through, she rode her own individual bike, which was made out of bamboo uh, and was manufactured in uh, Kampala, the capital of Uganda. So we met loads of interesting people on, on route, each of them with their unique stories and uh, ideas about the, uh, the economies we were going through. This is a lady called Lor Bofis, she was head of DFID in Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda is a, a fascinating country. Most of you will associate it with the, the genocide from uh, 20 years ago. Uh, but it's been a really interesting model for economic development uh, since then, one of the fastest growing African countries. And Law was head of the Department for International Development. Law Bofi, she was actually French. Uh, I'm not sure how many uh, British people would be running the equivalent of the French organizations uh, uh, in Africa, but learned a lot about learned a lot from her about uh, issues around uh, aid and trade. So there was Lobo Fis, there were, uh, she was a, a monk in Thailand on the, in, on the, on the Asian uh, leg, was trying to, yeah, telling something about, about Buddhism and, and different uh, uh, religions. Chieftainess Inkalengi, okay, so she was a, uh, interesting for a number of reasons, one, there are not that many uh, female chiefs in, uh, in Africa. This was in the remo remote northeast part of Zambia on the border between uh, Angola and um, uh, Ambo Angola, the DRC, near the source of the uh, Zambezi. And we, were we told her, oh, we're, we're going to China. And she was like, are you lost? Uh, and I was like, no, no, we're, we're going there. But she had actually been to China herself. Um, the Chinese government had taken all of the chiefs and chieftainesses from, from Zambia, and this was back in uh, 2015, 
and flown them out to uh, China to try and build that uh, relationship between the uh, two countries. So it's Sisnas in Kalengi. Uh, a lot of Chinese in the same country in Zambia, a couple of Chinese businessmen um, who were, again, couldn't I really understand why we were cycling through uh, the country. They originally offered me five kilograms of potatoes. Uh, they said, you must be hungry with all that cycling. And as for those of you who do cycle, what you don't want is to carry too much weight. So uh, instead, they uh, politely declined um, about four of the kilos of potatoes, took, a, took a, some of them home, but then enjoyed a, a, a beer with them. But it got me thinking, um, you know, what, what are the Chinese doing in Africa? Is it beneficial or exploitative? Uh, and that's one of the, the, the topics I wanted to come on to uh, later. Um, this is in Zimbabwe, uh, a anti-poaching ranger that just come back from a mission um, in a <coughs> one of the national parks. Interestingly, this, this gentleman had actually been on radio for the Today program about six months before I met him to talk about the most famous death in Africa, uh, according to some people, since um, Nelson Mandela. Uh, Cecil the Lion, who was shot by an American dentist in, in 2015, caused headlines ar around the world. And one of the, the most widely read sort of blogs, actually, we wrote was on the, um, not so much on hunting, but on the, the, the economics of poaching. So lots of interesting people. Where do we, a lot of people ask, you know, where did we sleep? Uh, what did we do for food and water? More often than not, we try and sleep it, stay in uh, schools when we weren't in towns. And normally, cycling services in Africa, cycling to a, a village, try and find the, the headman or the, the head teacher of a school and say, w would it be possible to, to camp in your, in your school? 90% of the time, people would say, uh, of course. And this was a school in, in actually in Tanzania. And the head teacher said, yeah, you're, you're, you're welcome to stay. We'll find you a safe place to sleep. Uh, he checked with uh, uh, one of the teachers and said, oh, fantastic, you can go and sleep in the library. And at the time, Kindles were broken, uh, so he didn't really have anything to read. He thought, fantastic, there might, might be something for us to read in the library. Uh, and we opened the door, we set up the tent, and without stating the obvious, there isn't, it's not really a library that you'd uh, associate with a school in, in, in this country. And this was a primary school in Tanzania. Um, woke up the next morning, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, there were 300 kids all ready to go to school. And, um, and it did, again, make, make you think, well, what are they actually going to do at school? The statistics have been uh, quite good for enrollment of uh, primary school pupils in Africa and countries like Tanzania, but actually the quality of the education is uh, questionable. And that was... Uh, 300 kids in the morning, there were going to be another 300 kids coming to the school in the, in the afternoon uh, too. Often, if appropriate, we'd uh, do a talk or a, a lesson the next day. This was actually at a school in Uganda where they were doing economics. So did a, uh, an economics lesson to their uh, year 12 students, just uh, drawing, a, I think, a, an economic cycle uh, diagram on the board for those of you who are economists. Uh, and visited quite a few uh, schools, as we talked about. This was, uh, again, an, in... Kampala, the capital of Uganda, an A-level economics lesson, which looks quite, okay, they don't have uh, amazing technology, but all of the kids are quite engaged. doesn't look like the class size is that big, but taken from a different angle, okay, there were 80 students in that class um, and completely different to what we're used to as uh, students at schools like Wellington or St. Paul's or any schools, to be honest, uh, in, in, in the UK. And uh, certainly there were a couple of uh, kids in, the, in there that were, that were asleep. Um, this wasn't Wellington, Shanghai, but the equivalent of, uh, of that in uh, Singapore. And again, talking to students like yourself about that. The, the picture that my wife's talking to at the time actually is, is probably the, the most interesting bit of physical geography that we saw on the trip. Uh, it's the world's largest live lava lake, uh, and it's in a volcano in the Democratic Republic of uh, Congo. And that was probably the best camping spot of the trip on the, on the crater rim. Uh, having walked up there with, um, it's a, in an area around Kivu where there's a lot of sort of conflict, so we had some armed guards with us, um, but it was a, a magical place to, uh, to, to sleep. But not really on the, uh, on, on the economics. So effectively what we did, we tried to tell the story of those natural resources going from African mine to sort of Chinese factory, and then we wrote economics uh, and sort of just general uh, travel blogs. 
that students were able to follow, and then use that technology using the, the, the 4G network or the Wi-Fi to Skype into, into classes uh, en route. So this was a, a class in actually in Thailand. We didn't, so we had been to see that school and then stayed in touch with them during the uh, journey talking about uh, bamboo bikes. This was a school uh, in Cambodia, again an international school. And, and when we got back, we continued to work for Skype and Microsoft to run lessons. And the, the main lesson that we ran was on fair trade, conflict minerals, uh, and uh, <coughs> smartphones, and all the resources you can find um, on uh, GTIC4U. So what were the lessons, effectively, that, or the, sort of the, the economic lessons around the world economy that we uh, w were most interested in? Well, there are loads of um, different ones. Uh, but I think the two things... I wanted to, to focus on, well, one, <coughs> education and the role of technology uh, in education, and secondly, the role of China in the world economy, and but particularly in Africa. So the, the role of technology in uh, education is quite, quite, quite interesting. Um, we go back to one of the stats I talked about, around half of the world's children will be in Africa uh, in 50 years' time, so that's going to be uh, about 2 billion uh, children. We've already seen the, that the, the photo from uh, Uganda of that A-level class. That was one of the top schools in, or government schools in Kampala, and yet there were 80 kids uh, per student. So can, how can we use technology to improve education? Education is a key driver of uh, sort of economic growth. And I'm just going to, this was a, a, an interesting um, experiment done in 2012 by a charity One Laptop Per Child, which tries to um, use technology to sort of boost educational attainment in different parts of the world. I'm just going to read this. So effectively what they did is they dropped tablet computers in the two remote villages in Ethiopia. They explained to the elders how to charge them using solar, but they didn't give any educational instruction on how to use the tablets. And I just sort of read the quote from the, the CEO of that uh, charity. I thought the kids would play with the boxes. Uh, within four minutes, one kid had not only opened the box, found the on-off switch, powered it up. He said, within five days, they were using 45 apps per child per day. Within two weeks, they were singing ABC songs in the village. And within five months, one of those primary school students had hacked into Android. Um, now, that, to me, is, is, is pretty uh, um, amazing. The conclusion they were drawing was giving kids access to technology is maybe more important than giving them uh, access to schools. Uh, something as a teacher, I maybe disagree uh, with, but certainly, you know, the saying that maybe we, you hear in this country, technology isn't going to replace teachers, but teachers that don't use technology uh, will be uh, replaced. Now, we were sort of working with a couple of NGOs, charities in Africa that are trying to use technology in these schools, and what we found over and over again was that we'd go into the, sc the schools, and this was, again, four or five years ago, but I think it's still the case, where uh, because the technology is still seen as being very valuable and expensive, those tablets would be sort of locked up in the staff room and not really used effectively. And so uh, two or three of the schools that we visited in Uganda, in particular at the start of the trip, that were trying to use technology uh, more readily uh, were, weren't really um, doing it that effectively. The other sort of interesting thing in, I think, in Africa uh, that chimes to an extent with what's going on in here is that sort of what, what role the sort of private sector has to play in delivering education in that part of the world. Interestingly, the private sector here at schools like St. Paul's and, and Wellington, on the whole, uh, tends to educate the, 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 the wealthier part of the population. Private schools in, in certain parts of Africa are actually trying to look after the sort of the bottom of the pyramid, sort of a dollar a day of uh, per, <coughs> a dollar a day of uh, fees. Um, and some of the more interesting um, sort of NGOs, so we've got, for example, I was just reading Bridge Academies uh, started in Kenya. Investors include Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Pearson. One of the biggest, is ch biggest change in terms of how they use technology, they effectively have untrained teachers following scripted lessons downloaded from uh, a tablet. And it certainly divides opinion as to whether it's effective, but governments are adopting 
that model. And there's just a headline uh, talking about the Liberian government that are trying to uh, turn into the private, spe private sector to overhaul, overhaul failing schools. There's a headline that you could, sit, you could maybe read in the UK five, six years ago um, as the academisation uh, is taken off uh, a bit. So um, we'll come back to it uh, at the end, but I think education is going to be uh, you know, a, a really, really important thing in the developing world and how we use technology, especially in that part of the world, but in uh, education more broadly, um, is going to be a key thing over the next five uh, or ten years and beyond. The sec second thing I was just going to talk about is um, the role of China. Um, this is a main road in, in northern Zambia. When my parents did their honeymoon back in uh, the 1970s, they used to say that uh, in Africa you don't drive on the left, but you drive on what's left of the road. Um, nowadays, the roads are actually pretty good, and that's partly down to um, the Chinese sort of foreign direct investment in the continent. Uh, at at uh, supper with some of the... Um, uh, year 12, we were talking about Mark Beaumont. He's a much stronger cyclist than I, than I am. He's cycled around the world in 80 days, doing 16 hours a day, about 200 miles a day. As a warm-up for that round-the-world cycle, he cycled from Cairo to Cape Town in 43 or 44 days unsupported. It took me um, eight or nine months. Still, I felt I was working quite hard. But he wouldn't have been able to do it if it wasn't for the Chinese-built uh, roads. But the question as an economist and as a, sort of someone interested in the, the geopolitical situation today and new Silk Roads that we talk about as China's signature foreign policy is, is China's investment in other parts of the world exploitative or uh, beneficial? Um, you, know, you hear the standard criticism, China's investment is only benefiting the elite local labor is not being employed uh, effectively, and there isn't a social angle to a lot of the investment. Unlike in, in the UK, uh, we have DFID that makes sure that a lot of the investment that, that has a, a social angle. But on the other hand, China, the, the idea that it, trade is much more beneficial than aid to developing countries does have a lot of, um, a lot of credence, and certainly we're seeing that, that through investing in roads and infrastructure, it's having a big impact on the uh, ability of developing countries in Africa and other parts of the world to grow at a faster uh, rate. Having said that, there are still sort of white elephants and investments that don't really uh, make uh, a lot of sense. This is uh, an amazing football stadium in a uh, sort of fairly deprived mining town in Zambia called uh, Ndola. And you can see that sign in the middle uh, the Levy Manwasa uh, Stadium, who was a former president of the Zambia, but it came from China Aid, which is sort of UK uh, DFID or, or the equivalent of that, or USAID um, in China. And I actually took a, 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 a school trip to uh, Zambia from St. Paul's a couple of years ago, and for a dollar we were able to play a football match in the, in the middle of this 35,000-seater uh, stadium. And around there, there are kids that aren't going to school, um, that don't have decent education. So again, a question mark as to whether that investment from the Chinese government was uh, effective as, a, as, a, as an example. Um, talking of, of, of elephants, the, you know, I was talking about the, the, the poaching angle. The most popular economics blog, actually, that uh, I wrote at the time was on the something we labelled the elephantine cost of trade uh, in Africa, the current rate of poaching, or well, this was the case in 2015, I don't think it's improved that much. I was just looking it up uh, uh, this evening before coming out here. Though at the current rate of poaching, there wouldn't, won't be an African elephant in the wild in 12 or 13 years' time. And as I said, we spent a, couple, a bit of time with two anti-poaching units in both Zambia and Zimbabwe. Blondie Lethan, the guy I talked to, who was the expert on Radio 4 on uh, Cecil the Lion, um, and I think from a sort of economics perspective, there's a lot of work that these rangers are doing at the point of supply, but they're facing a, a losing battle. One, you've got a lot of people who are unemployed, willing to risk their lives for, to make uh, a few hundred dollars, which would make a huge difference to them. 
that they can get for the uh, ivory. But the conclusion, and from an economics perspective, we talk about supply and demand. They need to do something really uh, on the demand side. Quite a lot is being done on, in sort of political circles on that. There still, I think, is some low-hanging fruit. A recent survey in China, for example, found that two-thirds of respondents thought the tusks grew back like uh, fingernails, and that those photos uh, tell their own uh, story. One of the things that Blondie Latham, the economics ranger who had the semi-automatic rifle on my shoulder in Zimbabwe, there needs to be an economic return from that land. Um, he actually uh, worked on a hunting lodge, which some people may disagree with, but there needs to be an economic return from that land, either through tourism uh, or uh, hunting. And that pressure is only going to get uh, more pronounced as the population statistics that we've already talked about um, mount. Four billion people in Africa by the end of this century. They're currently somewhere around about one and a half billion. So we're more than doubling that population and putting that massive pressure on those scarce resources. Um, so we then spent at the, at the end of the trip a couple of months cycling around uh, China, having cycled up through um, Southeast Asia. Um, this was back in, in 2016. We were thinking about, you know, is there going to be a hard landing in economic speak? Is the Chinese economy going to go into a uh, recession? Uh, certainly the, uh, the situation now is precarious with the coronavirus um, and sort of car sales in China down 90-odd percent in, <coughs> in, in February. Um, but one of the, the things we saw, there's plenty of, it, plenty of evidence then and still now of overinvestment. We didn't cycle through the industrial uh, north, but lots of evidence of residential overinvestment, uh, ghost-like towns of unfinished uh, tower blocks. And that sort of common narrative, the business sector is overinvested. If you all buy a sort of state-sponsored lending spree uh, that has continued despite warnings, warning signs in the financial sector. But I guess the key for us is, that, you know, is, is there the political will to, to make that reform? But I'm not going to go too technical um, uh, on you with the, with the economic speak. But we certainly, visited, you know, this was just sheltering from the rain, a guy trying to sell us a pretty amazing uh, flat um, for uh, about, it would have been about 60 or 70,000 pounds. So things were still uh, pretty cheap there compared to uh, London. But as I just put in when I was putting the slides together yesterday, the coronavirus could be that uh, catalyst to bring the Chinese but the world economy uh, down. And we can talk a bit more about that uh, later. So I think whether China uh, avoids a hard landing in the long term will partly depend on how successful its signature foreign policy is. Now, coming back to the, you know, we, we set out to try and cycle one of the Silk Roads. Um, <coughs> you'll probably have heard of the, the, the phrase One Belt, One Drive initiative, or commonly known as the, the New Silk Roads, which is China's signature uh, foreign policy. And the government has, the government of China has massively invested in that. When we were sort of planning this trip back in 2013, 2014, Africa was a large part of the Chinese uh, investment strategy. It had diminished a bit in 2015, but there is still a huge amount of investment uh, going, going in. The Silk Road arguably is more about trying to improve infrastructure in uh, Southeast Asia and uh, Central and South Asia. And, and what we did effectively is follow one of those routes from Singapore up to uh, China. Um, and one of the things that the Chinese government is doing is trying to build a, a high-speed rail network through, um, through them. And there was plenty of skepticism as to whether that uh, investment was simply a way of exporting China's excess, excess uh, capacity. Um, um, and you know, certainly in, 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 in Thailand, they talked about 10 rounds of negotiations, relative regular standoffs between the sort of the Chinese and the local um, businessmen about who builds it and where the raw materials and labor uh, were going to come to. But I think either way, when we're looking at the sort of China's uh, new Silk Roads, there's little coincidence that their new foreign policy initiative coincides with the aftermath of an investment boom and the associated, associated uh, excess capacity now in new need of new markets overseas. And there's a really interesting irony for sort of historians here that whether we could we be seeing, seeing now that Lenin's theory 
that imperialism is driven by capitalist surpluses now being played out in one of the last, at least ostensibly, uh, communist countries. Uh, Lenin was, uh, was writing this um, back in the sort of early 20th century about the causes of the, uh, likely causes of the, sorry, he was writing it actually, sorry, quite later on, but about the causes of the First World War, and certainly uh, we can't afford a third. The Silk Road, coming back to those ancient Silk Roads, was a way of sharing new ideas and innovations across uh, the world. And I'm really hopeful that what we do see with new Silk Roads is actually that sharing of ideas um, and um, innovation, education uh, around the world. So what are my sort of conclusions from uh, my journeys through uh, Africa and Asia. I think the, there are three things I'd, I'd, I'd share with you. First is education. Education, education, that's sort of uh, one of Tony Blair's mantras back from the uh, late 1990s. Um, for different reasons, I think it's going to be super, super important, especially uh, in the developing world, and that education sector needs to harness that te technology, needs more investment, but I think that's a really exciting area. Uh, the second is that we need more trade and more exchange of ideas, not less. The sort of recent developments since I've sort of come back from China in terms of the rise of Trump and economic populism, uh, we actually got back uh, on the day that Britain, well, we were actually, I was at Wellington College uh, the week after I got back talking at, the, uh, at your festival, and it was the day that we had voted as a country, or the day after, to leave the European Union. Um, whether or not you disagree with that, I'm glad that we've sort of at least come to a, a decision on that. But th I think they are worrying signs for those of us that believe in a sort of uh, a, f a free trade, non-protectionist uh, world. But I think finally, and, and, and most importantly, uh, as, as human beings, the trip reinforced my sort of belief in humanity. I was saying this at... Uh, at dinner earlier, that despite all the news flow, 99% uh, of the people on this planet are fantastic uh, people, and we were blown away by the kindness of strangers. And I'd certainly recommend to any of you, uh, if you're thinking of um, doing a journey, to go and do it. Don't procrastinate too much. Uh, and I would recommend cycling as a great way to see a country and to try and understand what's going on in that country or in the world. Um, from the ground level, rather than just sitting in a, uh, sitting in an office um, or a classroom, it's important to do that. But go out there and, and understand what you're learning about in the classroom. So I will uh, finish there. And I think I've been talking for uh, long enough, and hopefully have some questions. What are the most shocking economic uh, policies I've come across? I'd say, uh, well, <coughs> I guess I didn't cycle through, um, I was going to say I didn't cycle through America, so I think some of Mr. Trump's are a, a bit, but in terms of some of the ones where, uh, of the countries that I went through, um, well, in Zambia, uh, it wasn't so much an economic policy, but when we, w when we arrived there in 2016, there was what we call a sort of triple deficit. So there was a trade deficit, there was a budget deficit, and there was a, not really an economic term, but there was a power deficit because there wasn't a, there had been a drought for a couple of years. There wasn't enough uh, water in the uh, dams to, for its hydroelectricity. Uh, so effectively, the government, what the, it's quite a uh, Christian country, but the government had a national prayer day for the economy. Now, uh, I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that's a, a, the wrong thing to do, but it probably wasn't necessarily uh, the, you know, the, 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 the best way necessarily to get the economy, um, e economy going. So that's one to, I guess, uh, th that I can think of off the top of my head. But there are you know, plenty of examples. I mean, Robert Mugabe, um, 
We didn't see his policies in action uh, in terms of he had, he had um, lost his, pr his presidency at the time. But we actually spoke at a school in southern Zimbabwe. Uh, and for those of you who, I'm sure most of you sort of follow this story there, but they had massive hyperinflation. So uh, what you could buy a, <coughs> a house for at the start of the year, effectively you could buy a loaf of bread for at the end of the year. So there was a, a, a school with a fairly enterprising uh, head teacher that we stayed with in southern Zimbabwe. And he said during the, the crisis, he was taking most of his school fees in grain and they had a bakery on site and they were basically making their own food. So a lot of the, uh, the parents were farmers and so they rather than paying school fees in worthless Zimbabwean dollars, they were paying school fees in sort of food. So it was almost going back to that barter economy. So I mean, yeah, Zimbabwe probably the a bit like Venezuela today, um, the economic policies le have left that country in ruin. Go to the back there. Yeah, good question. And people ask you, is actually, is it, uh, what's it like cycling a tandem uh, on your own? On that first trip, I'd say probably about half the time it was filled. Um, and over the course of that first trip, there were about 250 people that uh, joined on the, uh, on the back seat and a probably a similar number on the, on the second trip. So about, I think, um, yeah, around about 500 people or so have had the uh, pleasure or displeasure of uh, being on the back of the bike, including Mr. Owen's uh, wife, actually. Yeah, we have a question. Yeah. Do I think the next finance? Uh, I think if you, uh, I guess, I think it, China will certainly be involved. There's been a, um, if we think about what's going to cause a financial crisis, the banking sector is, is likely to be involved. The in China, you could say, in, similar to what happened in 2008, 2009. The, in, in, in the West, the government is much more or is significantly involved in, uh, in the sort of financial, in the sort of banking sector. So a lot of those banks are state owned. And if you look at the sort of debt statistics, uh, some of the stats in China are quite um, scary. So if we have a recession in China, now how do you define a recession in China is, is different maybe to the UK, but if growth does fall off a cliff like it could well do um, over the next few months, depending on how the coronavirus goes, then you will have a lot more uh, non-performing loans and you could then have that financial crisis coming out of it. So, um, yes, I think that, that China could well be the, the source of the next one. Yes. Yeah, I think it would be, um, uh, having done yeah, most of Africa and a, a decent chunk in Asia, it would be... a Obviously, the main sort of continent um, still to do would be uh, uh, the Americas. And, yeah, my, my wife and I have sort of said it would be great during our lifetime and the sort of lifetime of the bike to try and get it uh, all the way around the world. So that would be, if we were to do another big trip, then I think the Americas would be the, um, the interesting one. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, a lot of us over here, we look at America, but it's like as North America and Latin America, again, fascinating place to, 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 to go and see. A lot of people have done that, that route, um, but I think, yeah, Latin America ha uh, would be, of the developing countries, is the, is the, the continent still for us to, to do. Yeah, I mean, you, I think you can if you've, if you've got the, the confidence that you could just sort of take a bike and fly to the other side of the world and then cycle home. Um, I, I did quite a lot of planning. I was a, a teacher, and I, I didn't really go into the detail, but the school I was teaching at at the time, which was Cranley School, one of, I think, one of your rivals, um, we, I helped to set up a project for them in Zambia. So a lot of the planning was around, not so much about the trip, but around the, the sort of fundraising and marketing um, of that. Um, but, so it pro I probably was planning it for about 18 months, um, but I'd be confident now to say, 
having got the bike and knowing how to do it, that it could, you know, if, if I needed to, 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 to do that in a, in a couple of weeks. But I guess the, the, the hardest thing in some ways with, the, with trying to do a big trip like this is actually deciding to do it. Um, uh, and I did, it, you know, spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. Um, but I think once you've decided to do it, that's the, in some ways the hardest, the hardest decision to make. Um, and actually not to worry about the detail. Um, whatever, you know, there's the saying that uh, uh, planning is essential, but plans are useless. Oft often you just get, you can't stick to that original plan, but sometimes it just gives you that sort of peace of mind. Um, cycling is, you're treated like a pedestrian on most of the borders, so it's very easy to get across uh, countries, whereas if you're trying to drive, getting vehicles across borders is often really, uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape around it. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the, so the China is, there's different ways of looking at it. China's the second biggest economy in the world, and it provides a, a, a lot of trade. So, for example, with Africa, around 20% of Africa's trade is with uh, China. Uh, in the UK, it's not quite as significant, but it's been the fastest growing area of trade. So the way in which it would have the impact on the rest of the world would be mainly through uh, uh, trade. We've heard, like, anecdotally, that, like, Land Rover, for example, are sending... Uh, key components out of China in suitcases because they can't, their supply chains are affected. But I think the main way it's going to affect uh, the rest of the world would be through, because it is the sort of world's manufacturing hub. So through, uh, I mean, without getting too technical, but effectively disrupted supply chains mean higher costs for uh, consumers, which means you have mes less money to spend. So uh, a potentially a recession. In the, in the, and the, the world economy is so much more interconnected now than, than, it, than it ever has been. So um, China is the fastest growing of the major economies and the second biggest. It, there will be a significant impact for the world economy. And that's why, for those who've been following it, the, you know, the stock market globally was down sort of 13.5% last week. Good question.